You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And then picking up with this same thought in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. May and June are often called graduation season for the very reason that schools and colleges throughout the U.S. are awarding diplomas and degrees for students' accomplishments. Even as we speak, thousands are filled in the middle of Hanover for Dartmouth's graduating class of 2019. And some of those students, I'm sure, are right now walking and waiting to hear their name and receive their diploma. Now, there is something fitting about recognizing events like that, human accomplishments, but it does make you wonder how much of what we spend time praising is of such temporal value and not of eternal significance. And and what does it mean to be able to look at things that are done and to say, you know what, this task, this work, has eternal significance. And so we've been looking at the subject of serving the Lord the last couple weeks. We looked at the Old Testament perspective, and we're bringing that to a close this Sunday by looking at what does works of eternal value look like. In other words, as believers, we are convinced and can say with certainty we're saved by grace. But that same grace that saves us should produce works that last, that have eternal value. Uh, And so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you know your New Testament, you know there's a letter that's called 1 Corinthians, and then there's a 2 Corinthians. We are aware when you read those that Paul had at least three letters he sent to this group of believers. And by God's sovereignty, that missing letter we don't have and it doesn't affect the integrity at all of scripture but but paul was in correspondence with this particular church 
Uh, it's a church that he came across during his second missionary travels in Acts 18, uh, probably started by Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, but Paul spent 18 months at Corinth, which is a pretty long time considering how Paul is a church planner and he really does not stay consistently in one place. So there is an attachment to this particular church, just like many of the other places that Paul has played a big role in. Uh, but looking at this particular church, Paul sends this letter that we're calling 1 Corinthians out of a deep concern about reports of, of division and spiritual immaturity within the church. And it's in that context that he, in particular, in chapters 3 and 4, aims his teaching at Christian leaders. So as we're going to take a look at this, kind of picture that immediately Paul's audience is Christian leaders, those who are in positions of spiritual leadership in the church in Corinth. But as we will see, that does not mean this has no application to every believer because we see what he says here is relevant to all of us. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and we read verses 10 through 15, but to appreciate what's going on there, we need to back up and look at verses 1 through 4. Because among Christians, even today, there's a tendency to downplay either the importance of serving in the church or to do the exact opposite, and that is to idolize certain Christian leaders or teachers. So kind of think of this this correct balance we should maintain with serving the Lord but at the same time we have a tendency to either sort of think service is something someone else should do not me or we can wrongfully elevate those in leadership or elevate certain quote-unquote servants in the church to almost a sort of celebrity Christian status so listen to what Paul says here in verses 1 through 4 Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, merely infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for there is jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? And there he touches upon this celebrity status that was gripping the church in Corinth that was evidence not of holiness, but of worldliness. Now, Paul says this with the utmost affection and love because you notice how verse 1 begins, brothers. This is a term of, of affection, brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul's not looking at just trying to throw a sharp rebuke at this church. He had spent 18 months investing time, energy, and teaching there. But he's very troubled that they have so elevated certain individuals that they have, in a sense, now almost idolized them. Now, I don't think anyone in the church in Corinth, and there were certainly solid believers there, 
But those that Paul's addressing, I don't think any of them would say, well, Paul, we don't worship these people. But in the way they had elevated them, the status they seemed to have given them, especially in light of saying, well, I'm a follower of this person and I'm a follower of this one, that they were leading to division within the body. That this distorted the whole concept, not just of Christian leadership, but what does it mean to lead and be a servant of Christ? Now, if you would just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul began the letter by quickly reminding them of what reports he has heard. And so you see in verse 12, Paul specifically identifies here who we're, we're talking about, these groups that you seem to be forming. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. It is hard for us to picture. How could you have a church where, where there's these sort of factions developing and saying, well, you know what? I'm a follower of Paul. I, I think Paul's the best teacher of Scripture. And then you have another person saying, well, Apollos, you know, this very gifted Christian apologist, this Alexandrian Jew who is very eloquent, knows scripture. He, he's the one you really should listen to. And someone else saying, well, you know what? Uh, I'm even going to do better than that. I follow Peter. You know, Peter's the apostle. He's the one. And then you could picture someone saying, you know what? I'm not getting caught up in this because, hey, you know, I just follow Jesus. Now, if that sounds like hard to believe, think of it within Christianity today. We have people who are so magnified or attached to certain theologians or people that it almost as if they're saying, you know what? Well, if you really want to follow Christ, you got to listen to this one. You got to listen to this person. And Paul's saying this is creating a problem in the church. And he's very clear the fault here does not lie with these Christian leaders. So it doesn't lie with Paul, doesn't lie with Apollos. They're not out trying to do this to promote themselves. That actually marks false apostles. But Paul's saying the reason this problem is generated because of the sinfulness of those who are sitting out in the pews, out listening to these particular teachers. So we know it is very easy to get caught up with appearances. We live far removed from Hollywood where we're likely to see a celebrity. But it is easy for us to elevate certain servants or people in our church, in the realm of evangelical Christianity, and, and sort of often look to them as if they are the ones that we need to be listening to, not God and his word. So in a climate that is similar to Corinth, because we're sinful people, we get attached to the wrong things. How should we view those in Christian leadership? And again, remember that the primary audience in this initial third and fourth chapter is, Paul's talking about leaders, Christian leaders. And so if you look closely at 1 Corinthians 3, notice what verses 5 through 9 go on to explain for us. That the way we should see these people, 
is spelled out. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And you want to go back and look at verse 5, the way Paul puts this. These individuals, including himself, these Christian leaders, they're only servants. And that word servants is the exact same word that we derive our term deacon from. They are those who labor for the benefit of others, those who literally wait on tables. So they are committed and devoted to serving Christ. And that's how you should see them. They're, they're servants. And notice he says they each have been assigned a specific task. So we're not to look at them and say, well, this one's better because they have more people who listen to them. They have more listeners on their podcast or they uh, have bigger churches. He says, no, no, they're all servants. They're each doing the work that God has called them to. So we're not to get caught up in a wrongful comparison here. And I think this is very vital for any church. And I would say even more so for a small church. Don't get caught up in comparing the wrong things to determine if you are a church that is being faithful to God. Because it is very easy to do that. And if it's easy for pastors to do that, I think it's easier even for congregants to do that. Because that's what our world looks for to determine success. So as you look at this scene, notice Paul's very clear. These men are servants. And we could replace all the names today with other popular Christian leaders and say, you know what? If they're doing the work God's assigned to them, they're, they're servants. That's all. A worthy task, but they're doing that which God has assigned them. But then go down to verse 9 and notice the connection here that we, believers, we're God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. And Paul loves to move from different metaphor and pictures. So he kind of moves from the area of agriculture, you're, you're God's field. And then he moves to that thought of architecture, uh, you're God's building. We're, we're being built up, as Peter would later write, uh, into a spiritual dwelling, a, a house for God to live in by his spirit. If you look at chapter 4, you'll notice verses 1 and 2, Paul expands on that concept of of these Christian leaders in this immediate context are servants. And in verses 1 and 2, he says, So then, which tells you he's bringing this part of the discussion to a conclusion, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. He just said that. And as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must 
prove faithful. Now, he uses the same word servants as he did in chapter 3, like a deacon. But notice he adds to that those entrusted with the secret things of God. Some translations have correctly. We, we are stewards. The, these men have been placed over God's house. It does not belong to them. It's not their church. It's not their kingdom they're building. But they have been entrusted with a great responsibility by God. What a way for us to look at Christian leaders and just the concept of those in the body of Christ and in the larger body of Christ who theologically, spiritually uh, encourage us and strengthen us. We, we are to give them a proper recognition and esteem, but not idolize them. And maybe the way sometimes you could picture whether or not you idolize is when we do hear of someone stumbling and falling in the Christian community. Do we act almost like shocked that how could something like this ever happen to someone so holy? Are, are we forgetting here how frail all of us are? Are we forgetting the need for continual accountability prayers of the body for those who are in positions of leadership. Paul says, don't, don't idolize these, these individuals. Esteem them, yes, if they're doing what God has assigned them to do. And notice Paul's intent there in chapter 4. They're called to do one thing in verse 2. They must prove what? Faithful. Why didn't he use the word successful? We would like to say that. Well, if they're successful, then God delights in them. Problem is the definition of success changes every day. But faithfulness means they're, they're trustworthy. They are reliable. They teach us the whole counsel of God over and over and over again. And they live that out. I'm sure people who knew Apollos, Paul, and Peter were very much aware that these men were not perfect. But at the same time, I would say they were very much aware these men were transformed by Christ and were continually being transformed by Christ. Now, in light of what Paul has to say here about the problem of idolizing Christian leaders. Paul desires to correct this problem. And he's going to follow up with a visit, but in between, he wants them to deal with this based on these instructions. But in order to help them, Paul says, I'm going to put something before you. And what he puts before them is the certainty that we will all have to stand before Christ. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to threaten you because I'm going to come and I'm going to speak to you. But he says, you know what, let me, let me put before you the certainty that you will have to stand before Christ to give an account. Now, now again, think for a moment, we're still primarily looking at Christian leaders in the church. But you're going to see how this 
perfectly fits where Paul will take this and apply it to everyone in Christ. But go back to 1 Corinthians 3, and we read verses 10 through 15, which is at sort of the center of this instruction. So Christian leaders will need to give an account for how they have built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. So notice that it is Christ who established the church, not, not these other leaders. The apostles and prophets certainly are a part of that foundation because they're presenting the teachings of Christ, but Christ is the one true foundation of the church. So now the question is, well, how do individuals like Apollos and others and those who followed in the centuries past and presently are seen as leaders in local churches as well as in the wider church, how have they built upon the foundation of Christ? And so look with me at verse 10. And Paul says there, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. Well, that word careful, as you would well assume, means to pay close attention. Why do you have to pay so close attention to how a church is, is built and how leaders grow the kingdom of God? Because we are so susceptible to making God's kingdom be our kingdom. By building on what may be expedient, not necessarily excellent in God's eyes. We know there are certainly very quick ways, I think, to increase numbers. That is not always the best approach. Now, I'm not saying we, we should want to see our church grow. So we should never just be content and be like, well, we're small, close-knit fellowship, and that's great. That is good, and there are strengths to that. But we also want to see more people come to Christ, more people be raised up and, and grown up through the church and become servants. But you notice here it says to these leaders, be very careful how you build upon that foundation because you will have to give an account before God. Go down to verses 12 and 13, and you have this vivid description of, of a structure going up and different materials that may be used in that process. Again, Paul's love for sort of an architectural imagery here. Uh, and you notice in verse 12, it says, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. Now, the picture of fire here, because he's talking to Christian leaders, is not necessarily one directly of judgment, but purification. In, in other words, they're, they're Christians, they're godly leaders, but is it possible in the process of building the church that they have built it in a way that is not always according to God's word. And notice it says this will be revealed not necessarily in this day, but on that day when you will stand before Christ. And on that day, 
then it gives you this picture of testing is to prove something. It is to say, what is of value and eternal significance? And only that will remain standing. Again, think here. This is not talking to the unbeliever. This is talking to the Christian leader. And so you see in verses 14 and 15, in that day, when this final purification before Jesus Christ will take place, it says, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fire. Do you have a picture here of one who is saved by grace, Christian leader, the works will be tested. Those works that were not done in the right motive, heart attitude, in a way that honored Christ will completely be done away with. They will not be works that last. And then based on that assessment is not the question of whether they're saved or not, but is the meriting and giving of rewards. So when it says they will suffer loss, it means they will be deprived of certain rewards. Again, Paul's writing to Christian leaders. Now, you may have heard someone, if not, you, I'll give you a little heads up. You may have heard someone say, well, this verse supports purgatory. So if you have any friends who are Catholic who believe that, you know, when, when a Catholic dies, rarely is a true Catholic, they would argue, perfect enough to get into heaven. And so they need to go to purgatory where they're refined to the point of which they're pure enough now to go to heaven. And some would try to use this verse. The problem here, this verse is not talking about individuals. It's talking about works that will be burned up. That's a very different picture here. Because the person's salvation is intact. It is by grace. So go back to how I began this message. Very important. You are saved by grace. You, you did not contribute anything to that. Other than if you want to say, I brought my sin. I acknowledge my utter sinfulness before Christ. But because now you are saved by grace, Paul's making a connection. You should produce works that last by grace. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 to maybe give you an idea of what, what is Paul thinking when he's talking about these, these rewards, these works that last. So as you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, another church that Paul loves deeply, church in Thessalonica, church that he founded and then because of persecution there had to leave abruptly after a very short stay in fact Paul is, is heartbroken that he has to leave uh, he says in a sense that that they they were torn away from me uh, and, and yet as he completely understands God's sovereignty and providence in that but but his thought is I, I didn't want to leave there were there was such a young church and I didn't get a chance to ground them but notice in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, here's works that matter. 
And notice Paul does not digress into listing things, quote unquote, that he's done, but gives you the big picture. Verses 19 and 20, he says to them, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. What was Paul saying that he is looking forward to when he stands before Christ? Lives that have been transformed through his ministry and seeing them in heaven and knowing what an honor it was to impact and change these lives by God's grace. That's what every Christian leader, pastor, should be thinking about. These are the works that matter. And we accomplish those through daily obedience and, I might say at times, ordinary tasks. But they're works that matter. Well, we've been dealing with Christian leaders. And I've made the assumption that Paul does imply that all of this relates to every believer. That every believer will also stand before Christ. And I base this on something he says in particular in his second letter to the church at Corinth. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, among many other places throughout the New Testament, is this a reminder how, how God's judgment comes to first the household of God. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verses 9 and 10, same church, follow-up letter now, but Paul writes there in verses 9 and 10, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Notice now we're not talking about just church leaders. Each one refers to believers here. And we often probably don't speak about this, but what does it mean that you as a Christian will stand before Christ to give an account? Well, the word here, judgment seat, is uh, the word called the bema seat. And there are two different ways you can see this in antiquity. Um, for Roman magistrates, there was this sort of stone platform, typically in the center of a, a community, where the Roman magistrates would sit and, and hear cases of people and render rulings. So just imagine kind of a judicial scene. Magistrates are up on an elevated platform. They're hearing cases and they're rendering a declaration, either guilty or innocent. Well, the problem with that particular imagery would be it almost makes it sound like, well, as a Christian, you'll stand before Christ and then this is like a judgment of things you've done wrong. And, and you may start to realize, well, how does that square with like Romans 8, which says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So a better option may be to consider this Bema seat in a second way it can be used that it was also used for an elevated platform that marked the 
Isthmian athletic games, where after competing, those who competed successfully were awarded their trophies, their wreaths, by a group of those officials at that Bema seat. In other words, I think that portrayal says to us, as Christians, this final standing before Christ is not to determine in any way our salvation. We are saved by grace. Our sins, I am confident, have been paid in full. But it will be the determining of our rewards. And for Christians, this may include the loss of certain rewards because of your lack of service or your wrongful motives and motivation behind your serving. Now, it's interesting as to, because Scripture speaks of this reality, but Christians disagree on exactly what will this be like. So for some of you, you may have an image that all your sins are going to be run through some kind of jumbo screen. They'll all be brought to your attention. And then Jesus will say, but, but all those things have been forgiven in me. But yet somehow you may have a sense of remorse, uh, conviction in his presence. Other Christians would argue those sins have already been paid in full. So they're not going to be brought up because they've been forgiven. And passages like Psalm 103 would seem to support that, that your sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west. But what it will be a time is where your labor, your service, that is going to be tested. And that will be revealed before the one whose wisdom is perfect. So notice how Paul presents that to the Corinthian church and says, you need to keep this before you. If you want to understand what it means to serve Christ, think of this future certain scene that is inevitable. And, and keep that before you. Keep it before you if you're a Christian leader, but, but keep it before you if you're a Christian. Very interesting that you come to the end of almost the near end of Revelation, Revelation 22, where we're also warned not to add or take anything away from the Scripture. But even as the, the written canon of Scripture is being concluded, you have a reminder there that Jesus is going to call all to account. So it's as if the, the, the last few words of the Scriptures want to take us back and say, don't, don't forget this. If you want to live a life where works last, then keep this reality before you. You may have heard of the name David Livingston. Uh, a number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, when we were in England, uh, we were in Westminster Abbey, and he is one of the individuals who is buried and entombed under the floor of Westminster Abbey. Uh, his body is there, but according to his wishes, his heart is not, because he requested that his heart be left in Africa. And it was David Livingston who went to Africa for the primary purpose of exploring it, but to open access to the gospel in Africa. 
But what's very interesting is he was there for a number of years, came home for a little bit, came back to England, and he was asked to speak to students at Cambridge University. And what they wanted them to talk about was what was it like to leave the benefits of England to go to Africa? And, and as he spoke to them about this, uh, he came to the end of his speech. And here's what he had to say. He said, all things when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When you consider all of that, he said, I have never made a single sacrifice. Isn't that how we should view serving God? That when all is said and done, we would say, you know what, I, I've never really made a sacrifice. Compared to all that Christ has done for me, compared to what awaits me in heaven, there really is no comparison. And so I hope this refreshes and renews our understanding of, of Christian service, not just for those in leadership, but for all of us. Because one thing is certain, we will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. And he will test our works and only works that last will be those works that have done, been done unto him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are once again humbled and hopefully undone by your word. That we can each probably think of times that we have served where our motives have been anything but holy. Where what we've wanted is the attention of others and haven't even thought about whether or not the way we're doing something is drawing attention to you. Keep before us this week and every day in our lives that we will stand before you. Lord, may our rewards in heaven be rich and many because we have heeded these words that the church in Corinth, sadly for many, had not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.